Chapter 3 George Whitefield, The Man Who were the men who revived true religion in England a hundred years ago? What were their names so we can honor them? Where were they born? How were they educated? What are the main facts of their lives? What was their special area of labor? I want to provide some answers to these questions in the present and future chapters. I feel sorry for the person who has no interest in such matters. The instruments used by God to do His work in the world deserve a close inspection. The person who would not care to look at the ram's horns that blew down Jericho, the hammer and nail that slew Sisera, the lamps and trumpets of Gideon, or the sling and stone of David, might reasonably be considered a cold and heartless person. I hope that all who read or listen to this book want to know something about the English evangelists of the eighteenth century. The first and foremost person whom I will name is the well-known George Whitefield. Though not the first in order, if we look at the date of his birth, I place him first in the order of merit, without any hesitation. Of all the spiritual heroes of a hundred years ago, no one saw what the times demanded as soon as Whitefield, and none were so bold in the great work of spiritual aggression. I would think it would be an act of injustice if I placed any name before his. George Whitefield was born at Gloucester in the year 1714, the city where John Hooper preached and prayed, and the city where the zealous Miles Smith protested, was the place where the greatest preacher of the gospel that England had ever seen was born. Whitefield's early life, according to his own account, was anything but religious, although, like many boys, his conscience occasionally bothered him, and he experienced random fits of devout feeling. However, habits and general tendencies are the only true test of young people's characters. He confesses that he was addicted to lying, filthy talking, and foolish jesting, and that he was a Sabbath-breaker, a theatre-goer, a card-player, and a romance-reader. All this, he says, went on until he was fifteen years old. At the age of fifteen, Whitefield appears to have left school and to have given up Latin and Greek for a time. In all probability, his mother's difficult circumstances made it absolutely necessary for him to do something to assist her in business and to get his own living. Therefore, he began to help her in the daily work of the Bell Inn. At length, he says, I put on my blue apron, and I washed cups, cleaned rooms, and in one word became a professed common laborer for about a year and a half. This state of things, however, did not last long. His mother's business at the Bell Inn did not flourish, and she finally retired from it altogether. A former classmate revived in Whitefield's mind the idea of going to Oxford, and he went back to the grammar school and renewed his studies. Some friends recommended him for Pembroke College, Oxford, where the grammar school of Gloucester held two exhibitions. Eventually, after several providential circumstances had smoothed the way, he entered Oxford as a servitor at Pembroke at the age of eighteen. Whitefield's time at Oxford was the great turning point in his life. His journal explains that for two or three years before he went to the university, he had been having some religious convictions but from the time he entered Pembroke College, these convictions quickly grew into definite Christianity. George Whitefield diligently attended all means of grace within his reach. He spent his spare time visiting the city prison, reading to the prisoners, 
and trying to do good. He became acquainted with the famous John Wesley and his brother Charles, and a little band of like-minded young men, including James Hervey, the well-known author of Theron and Aspasio. These were the devoted party to whom the name Methodists was first applied because of their strict method of living. At one time he seems to have greedily devoured such books as Castanuza's Spiritual Combat and writings by Thomas Akempis, and he was in danger of becoming a semi-Roman Catholic, an ascetic, or a mystic, and of placing all of his religion in self-denial. He says in his journal, I always chose the worst sort of food. I fasted twice a week. My apparel was humble. I thought it unbecoming a penitent to have his hair powdered. I wore woolen gloves, a patched gown, and dirty shoes. And though I was convinced that the kingdom of God did not consist in meat and drink, yet I resolutely persisted in these voluntary acts of self-denial, because I found in them great promotion of the spiritual life. He was gradually delivered out of all this darkness, partly by the advice of one or two experienced Christians, and partly by reading such books as Henry Scougal's Life of God in the Soul of Man, William Law's Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, Joseph Aline's Alarm to Unconverted Sinners, and Matthew Henry's Commentary on the Bible. Whitefield wrote, Above all, my mind being now more opened and enlarged, I began to read the Holy Scriptures upon my knees, laying aside all other books, and praying over, if possible, every line and word. This proved food indeed, and drink indeed, to my soul. I daily received fresh life, light, and power from above. I got more true knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I could ever have acquired from all the writings of men. Once he understood the glorious liberty of Christ's gospel, Whitefield never turned again to asceticism, legalism, mysticism, or strange views of Christian perfection. The experience received by bitter conflict was most valuable to him. Once he thoroughly grasped the doctrines of free grace, they took deep root in his heart, and became, as it were, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Of all the little band of Oxford Methodists, none seemed to have gotten hold so soon of clear views of Christ's gospel as he did, and none kept it so unwaveringly to the end. At the early age of twenty-two, Whitefield was admitted to holy orders by Bishop Benson of Gloucester on Trinity Sunday, 1736. He did not seek his own ordination. The bishop heard of his character from Lady Selwyn and others. He sent for Whitefield, gave him a little money to buy books, and offered to ordain him whenever he wanted, even though he was only twenty-two years old. This unexpected offer came to him when he was full of doubts about his own fitness for the ministry. It cut the knot and brought him to the point of decision. I began to think, he said, that if I held out longer I would be fighting against God. Whitefield's first sermon was preached in the very town where he was born, at the church of St. Mary Le Crypt in Gloucester. His own description of it is the best account that can be given. Last Sunday in the afternoon I preached my first sermon in the church of St. Mary Le Crypt, where I was baptized and also first received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Curiosity, as you may easily guess, drew a large congregation together upon this occasion. The sight awed me a little at first, 
but I was comforted with a heartfelt sense of the divine presence. I soon found the unspeakable advantage of having been used to public speaking when a boy at school, and of exhorting the prisoners and poor people at their private houses while at the university. By these means I was kept from being overly daunted. As I proceeded, I perceived the fire kindled, until at last, though so young and amid a crowd of those who knew me in my childish days, I trust I was enabled to speak with some degree of gospel authority. A few people mocked, but most seemed for the present affected. I have since heard that a complaint was made to the bishop that I drove fifteen people mad the first sermon. The worthy prelate wished that the madness might not be forgotten before the next Sunday. Almost immediately after his ordination, Whitefield went to Oxford and earned his Bachelor of Arts degree. He then began his regular ministerial life by undertaking temporary duty at the Tower Chapel in London for two months. While there, he preached continually in many London churches. Among others, he preached in the parish churches of Islington, Bishopsgate, St. Dunstan's, St. Margaret's, Westminster, and Bow in Cheapside. From the very beginning, he obtained a degree of popularity such as no preacher before or since has probably ever reached. Whether on weekdays or Sundays, the churches were crowded wherever he preached, and an immense impression was made. The plain truth is that a really eloquent, extemporaneous preacher, preaching the pure gospel with most uncommon gifts of voice and manner, was at that time entirely unique in London. The congregations were taken by surprise and carried by storm. From London, George Whitefield went for two months to the village of Dummer, a little rural parish in Hampshire, near Basingstoke. This was a totally new sphere of action, and he seemed like a man buried alive among poor, illiterate people. He was soon reconciled to it, though, and thought afterward that he benefited much by conversing with the poor. From Dummer he accepted an invitation that had been much urged upon him by the Wesleys to visit the colony of Georgia in North America, and assist in the care of an orphan house that had been set up near Savannah for the children of colonists. After preaching for a few months in Gloucestershire, and especially at Bristol and Stonehouse, he sailed for America in the latter part of 1737, and continued there about a year. The affairs of this orphan house, it can be noted, occupied much of his attention from this period of his life until he died. Although well-intentioned, it seems to have been a design of very questionable wisdom, and certainly brought Whitefield a world of anxiety and responsibility to the end of his days. Whitefield returned from Georgia in the latter part of the year 1738, partly to obtain priests' orders, which were conferred on him by his old friend Bishop Benson, and partly on business connected with the orphan house. Soon, however, he discovered that his position was no longer what it was before he sailed for Georgia. The majority of the clergy were no longer favorable to him, but regarded him with suspicion as an enthusiast and a fanatic. They were especially opposed to him preaching the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth as something that many baptized persons greatly needed. The number of pulpits to which he had access rapidly diminished. Church officials who had no eyes for drunkenness and impurity were filled with intense indignation about what they called breaches of order. Bishops who could tolerate Arianism, Socinianism, and Deism were filled with indignation at a man who fully declared the atonement of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, and they began to denounce him openly. Beginning at this period of his life, 
Whitefield's field of usefulness within the Church of England narrowed rapidly on every side. The turning point of the whole course of Whitefield's ministry was his adoption of the system of open-air preaching. Seeing that thousands everywhere would not attend any place of worship, but spent their Sundays in idleness or sin, and were not to be reached by sermons within walls, he resolved, in the spirit of holy aggression, to go out after them into the highways and hedges, on his master's principle, and compel them to come in. Luke 14, 23. His first attempt to do this was among the coal miners at Kingswood, near Bristol, in February of 1739. After much prayer, he one day went to Hanam Mount, stood upon a hill, and began to preach from Matthew 5, 1-3, to about a hundred miners. The news about Whitefield's open-air preaching soon spread. The number of hearers rapidly increased until the congregation amounted to many thousands. His own account of the behavior of these neglected miners, who had never been in a church in their lives, is deeply touching. He wrote to a friend, Having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were glad to hear of a Jesus who was a friend to publicans, and who came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The first discovery of their being affected was the sight of the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. Hundreds of them were soon brought under deep conviction, which, as the event proved, happily ended in a sound and thorough conversion. The change was visible to all, though many people chose to impute it to anything other than the finger of God. As the scene was quite new, it often occasioned many inward conflicts. Sometimes, when twenty thousand people were before me, I did not have in my own thought a word to say either to God or them. But I was never totally deserted, and frequently, for to deny it would be lying against God, was so assisted that I knew by happy experience what our Lord meant by saying, Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7.38. The open skies above me, the prospect of the adjacent fields, with the sight of thousands, some in coaches, some on horseback, and some in the trees, and at times all affected and in tears, was almost too much for me, and quite overcame me. Two months later, on April 27, 1739, Whitefield began the practice of open-air preaching in London. The circumstances under which this happened were unusual. He had gone to Islington to preach for the vicar, his friend Mr. Stonehouse. In the midst of the prayer, the church officials approached him and demanded his license for preaching in the diocese of London. Whitefield, of course, did not have this license any more than any clergyman not regularly officiating in the diocese has at this day. The result of the matter was that since he was forbidden by the church wardens to preach in the pulpit, he went outside after the communion service and preached in the churchyard. And, he said, God was pleased to assist me in preaching, and so wonderfully to affect the hearers that I believe we could have gone singing hymns to prison. Let not the adversaries say that I have thrust myself out of their synagogues. No, they have thrust me out. From that day forward he became a consistent field preacher, whenever the weather and the season of the year made it possible. Two days later, on Sunday, April 29, he records, I preached in Moorfields to an exceeding great multitude. Being weakened by my morning's preaching, I refreshed myself in the afternoon by little sleep, and at five I went and preached at Kennington Common, about two miles from London, 
when no less than thirty thousand people were presumed to be present. From then on, wherever there were large open spaces around London, wherever there were large groups of idle, godless, Sabbath-breaking people gathered together, in Hackney Fields, Mary Le Bon Fields, Mayfair, Smithfield, Blackheath, Moorfields, and Kennington Common, there went Whitefield to lift up his voice for Christ. The gospel proclaimed in the fields was listened to and eagerly received by hundreds who never dreamed of going to a place of worship. The cause of pure religion was advanced, and souls were plucked from the hand of Satan like brands from the burning. However, it was going much too fast for the Church of England of those days. The clergy, with a few honorable exceptions, entirely refused to support this strange preacher. In the true spirit of the dog in the manger, they neither liked to go after the semi-heathen masses of population themselves, nor did they like anyone else to do the work for them. The consequence was that the sermons of Whitefield in the pulpits of the Church of England from this time almost entirely stopped. He loved the church in which he had been ordained. He gloried in her thirty-nine articles of belief, and he used her book of common prayer with pleasure, but the church did not love him, and so lost the use of his services. The plain truth is that the Church of England of that day was not ready for a man like Whitefield. The church was too much asleep to understand him, and was bothered by a man who would not keep still and let the devil alone. The facts of Whitefield's history from this period to the day of his death are almost entirely similar. One year was just like another, and to attempt to follow him would be only going repeatedly over the same ground. From 1739 to the year of his death in 1770, a period of thirty-one years, his life was one uniform work. He was eminently a man of one thing, and he was always about his master's business. From Sunday mornings to Saturday nights, from January 1 to December 31, except when laid aside by illness, he was almost incessantly preaching Christ and going about the world pleading with people to repent and come to Christ and be saved. There was hardly a considerable town in England, Scotland, or Wales that he did not visit as an evangelist. When churches were open to him, he gladly preached in them, and when only chapels could be obtained, he cheerfully preached in chapels. When churches and chapels were both closed to him, or were too small to contain his hearers, he was ready and willing to preach in the open air. For thirty-one years he labored in this way, always proclaiming the same glorious gospel, and always, as far as man's eye can judge, with immense effect. In one single Pentecost Sunday week, after preaching in Moorfields, Whitefield received one thousand letters from people under spiritual concern and he admitted three hundred and fifty people to the Lord's table. In the thirty-four years of his ministry it is calculated that he preached publicly eighteen thousand times. His traveling was impressive, especially when we consider the roads and means of transportation of his time. He was familiar with perils in the wilderness and perils in the seas, 2 Corinthians 11.26, if ever anyone was in modern times. He visited Scotland fourteen times, and was nowhere more acceptable or useful than he was in that Bible-loving country. He crossed the Atlantic back and forth seven times in miserable slow-sailing ships, and captured the attention of thousands in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. He went over to Ireland twice, 
and on one occasion was almost murdered by an ignorant Roman Catholic mob in Dublin. As to England and Wales, he travelled every part of them, from the Isle of Wight to Berwick-on-Tweed, and from the Land's End to the North Foreland. His regular ministerial work in London for the winter season, when field preaching was necessarily suspended, was something tremendous. His weekly engagements at the tabernacle in Tottenham Court Road, which was built for him when the pulpits of the established church were closed, comprised the following work. Every Sunday morning he administered the Lord's Supper to several hundred communicants at half-past six. After this he read prayers and then preached both morning and afternoon. Then he preached again in the evening at half-past five and concluded by addressing a large society of widows, married people, young men, and old maids, all sitting separately in the area of the tabernacle with exhortations suitable to their respective situations. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday mornings he preached regularly at six. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday evenings he delivered lectures. This, it will be observed, made thirteen sermons a week and all this time he was carrying on a large correspondence with people in almost every part of the world. It indeed seems astonishing that any human frame could so long endure the labors that Whitefield went through. It is no less amazing that his life was not cut short by violence, to which he was frequently exposed. However, he was immortal until his work was done. He died at last very suddenly at Newburyport, Massachusetts, on Sunday, September 29, 1770, at the comparatively early age of fifty-six. He was once married to a widow named Elizabeth James of Abergavenny, Wales, who died before him. If we can judge from the little mention made of his wife in his letters, his marriage does not seem to have contributed much to his happiness. He left no children, but he left a name far better than that of sons and daughters. Never, perhaps, was there a man of whom it could be so truly said that he spent and was spent for Christ. Second Corinthians twelve fifteen. Then George Whitefield. The circumstances and specific details of this great evangelist's end are so deeply interesting that I will not make any excuse for dwelling on them. It was an end in remarkable harmony with the tone of his life. He died as he had lived for more than thirty years preaching to the very last. He literally almost died in harness. Sudden death, he had often said, is sudden glory. Whether right or not, I cannot help wishing that I may go off in the same manner. To me it would be worse than death to live to be nursed and to see friends weeping about me. He had the desire of his heart granted. He was cut down in a single night by a fit of spasmodic asthma, almost before his friends knew that he was ill. On the morning of Saturday, September 29, the day before he died, Whitefield set out on horseback from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in order to fulfill an engagement to preach at Newburyport on Sunday. On the way, unfortunately, he was earnestly pleaded with to preach at a place called Exeter, and although feeling very ill, he didn't have the heart to refuse. A friend remarked before he preached that he looked more uneasy than usual and said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. To this Whitefield replied, True, sir. Then, turning aside, he clasped his hands together, looked up, and said, Lord Jesus, I am weary in your work, but not of your work. 
If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for you once more in the fields. Seal your truth, and come home and die. He then went and preached to a very great multitude in the fields from Second Corinthians thirteen five for about two hours. It was his last sermon, and was a fitting conclusion to his whole career. An eyewitness has given the following remarkable account of this closing scene of Whitefield's life. He rose from his seat and stood erect. His appearance alone was a powerful sermon. The thinness of his face, the paleness of his countenance, and the evident struggling of the heavenly spark in a decayed body for utterance were all deeply interesting. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was dying. He remained like this for several minutes, unable to speak. He then said, I will wait for the gracious assistance of God, for He will, I am certain, assist me once more to speak in His name. He then delivered perhaps one of his best sermons. The latter part contained the following passage. I go, I go to a rest prepared. My sun has given light to many, but now it is about to set. No, to rise to the zenith of immortal glory. I have outlived many on earth, but they cannot outlive me in heaven. Many will outlive me on earth, and will live when this body is no more. But there, O thought divine, I will be in a world where time, age, sickness, and sorrow are unknown. My body fails, but my spirit expands. How willingly would I live forever to preach Christ, but I die to be with Him! How brief, comparatively brief, has been my life compared to the vast labors that I see before me yet to be accomplished! But if I leave now, while so few care about heavenly things, the God of peace will surely visit you. After the sermon was over, Whitefield ate with a friend and then rode on to Newburyport, though greatly fatigued. Upon arriving there, he ate supper early and then went to bed. Tradition says that as he went upstairs with a lighted candle in his hand, he couldn't resist the inclination to turn around at the top of the stairs and speak to the friends who were assembled to meet him. As he spoke, the fire kindled within him, and before he could conclude, the candle that he held in his hand had actually burned down to the socket. He went to his bedroom to come out no more alive. A violent fit of spasmodic asthma seized him soon after he got into bed, and before six o'clock the next morning the great preacher was dead. If ever anyone was ready for his change, Whitefield was that man. When his time came he had nothing to do except die. He was buried where he died, in a vault beneath the pulpit of the church where he had intended to preach. His sepulchre is shown to this very day, and nothing makes the little town where he died as famous as the fact that it contains the bones of George Whitefield. These are the leading facts in the life of the Prince of English Evangelists of a hundred years ago. His personal character, the real extent of his usefulness, and some account of his style of preaching are subjects that I must keep for the next chapter.